This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found financial tech in the Guide Rock Capital Management Weekly Commentary for the week of June 3rd, 2013. Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska, and we post the show, including the written commentary, each week out at TheAverageGuy.tv. Financial Tech brings you the latest market commentary from the award-winning Andrew Hunt, CFP, and president of GuideRock Capital Management, located right here in Omaha, Nebraska. If you'd like to receive a free copy of the written commentary in advance, you can send us an email. Just send that to Andrew, Andrew underscore Hunt at GuideRockCapital.com and put subscribe in the subject line. Actually, put anything in the subject line and he will send that commentary right out to you. If you have questions or comments that we can read and answer on the show, and we actually have another one of those tonight, so thanks for, for doing that. If you have questions or comments, you can email the show. Uh, just send Again, send those over to Andrew, Andrew underscore Hunt at GuideRockCapital.com. And, of course, you can always catch Andrew on Twitter at Andrew D. Hunt. You can catch me on Twitter at Jay Collison. Andrew, we took last week off. Just had a lot of stuff going on, and we'll probably do 50 out of the 52 weeks for these uh, for these quick market commentaries. But uh, welcome back, and how are you? I'm well, and glad to be back. Yeah, last week, uh, I feel like I've been globetrotting as of late. If you follow me on Twitter or on Facebook or LinkedIn or any of those, you've heard about my escapades, but I was in San Francisco last week, um, and so... I know Jimmy C over here was busy as well. Just didn't make sense to try and do it from a hotel that particular week. So glad to be back. Well, what's what's going on in the markets? The Fed will taper. The Fed will not. The Fed will taper. The Fed will not. Last week, investors and traders and just about everybody else on the uh, in the financial world obsessed about the Federal Reserve and the possibility uh, that it might begin to end its quantitative easing program. Um, as you might remember, and we've talked about it on this commentary quite a bit, the Fed began its first round of quantitative easing, or QE as it's sometimes referred to, back during the uh, financial crisis as an effort to prop up the American economy. In general, quantitative easing helps increase money supply and promote lending and liquidity. And investors' fears about what may happen when the program ends became very apparent when despite abundant positive economic news, Major U.S. stock markets actually lost value last week. So I wanted to give you a quick play-by-play of how it all went down last week because it was pretty interesting uh, if you're watching it on the news or, or in the uh, evening wrap-ups. On Tuesday, uh, since Monday was a holiday, Memorial Day, of course, on Tuesday, the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index posted its biggest gain in seven years forever, it seems like. Biggest gain posted last Tuesday. Housing prices increased in every one of the 20 cities it tracks, and the U.S. markets, the stock markets, initially responded positively to the news. However, it wasn't long before the investors started to worry that, gosh, maybe stronger housing prices might speed up the Fed's timetable for quantitative easing, and then, of course, U.S. stock markets started to move lower and Wednesday. On Thursday, weaker than expected economic data, first quarter gross domestic product growth for the United States was revised downward from 2.5% to 2.4%. You heard me right. GDP growth was revised downward. And then what happened? Markets went higher. 
<laughs> and then on Friday, lots of positive news from the Thomson Reuters University of Michigan Index of Sentiment uh, showed that consumer confidence had reached the highest level in years. And, uh, and of course, this caused the markets to move downward. Uh, kind of counterintuitive. However, you know, the U.S. stock markets, they've generally finished higher for the month of May, even though the last week was kind of awkward and just bizarre uh, in the way the, the returns came or didn't come, rather. The Dow Jones finished the month uh, up 1.9%. The S&P 500 index rose by 2.1%. And the NASDAQ finished the month up 3.8% as well. Treasuries, however, delivered their worst monthly performance since 2010. During the last four weeks, the yields on the 10-year Treasury notes rose from 1.6% all the way up to 2.1%, which is an increase of 50 basis points, or for those of us who are uh, might not be financial wizards, 50 basis points equals 0.50%. So we've seen Treasury start to rise. Pretty interesting stuff out there. So have you heard about the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? Jim, have you heard about this, uh, this group that's out there? No, I haven't, Andrew. Okay, well, uh, I know I listen to a lot of NPR, and so I've heard about the CFPB. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a new thing that's, that's started to emerge. And some would say that it unnecessarily limits consumers' choices and is not uh, subject to enough oversight. Other people say, you know, gosh, this is a great new program, a great new agency that's going to protect consumers from unethical business practices and, and unnecessary financial hardship. But there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of people, regardless of what your opinion is, that are starting to turn for the CF to the CFPB for help. And the CFPB is funded by the Federal Reserve and it operates independently of Congress, which is pretty interesting. And that's also one of the reasons why some people don't think it has enough oversight. On their website, the CFPB says its purpose is to quote above all ensuring that consumers get the information they need to make the financial decisions that they believe are best for themselves and their families, that prices are clear up front, that risks are visible, and that nothing is buried in fine print. In a market that works, consumers should be able to make direct comparisons among products, and no provider should be able to use unfair, deceptive, or abusive practices." End quote. Um, so from July 2011, which is the date that the CFPB became effective, through February 2013, just a couple months ago, this new organization has worked to address more than 131,000 consumer complaints, which includes 5,000 issues which have been raised by members of uh, military, veterans, and their families, which is pretty interesting. And these complaints typically are related to things like mortgages, credit cards, bank accounts, private student loans, consumer loans, and credit reports. And uh, according to a recent Barron's article, the CFPB is, quote, progressing in its original mission of reducing predatory lending by mortgages and auto lenders, credit card issuers, and other consumer finance outfits. So far, the agency has forced financial institutions to repay $425 to consumers and tackle bias in auto loans made by finance companies, excuse me, finance companies, uh, via car dealers. The CFPB has formulated tighter mortgage lending rules that are being challenged in Congress. The Bureau is about to begin regulating an estimated 22,000 payday offices." End quote. You know, so for what it sounds like to me, Jim, the CFPB sounds like a pretty great organization that's really looking out to protect consumers. After all, one of the major purposes for us to do this podcast, this very podcast, is help consumers to be armed and aware and to make great decisions when it comes to their investing. However, uh, there is uh, maybe a little uh, unforeseen piece to the formulation of the CFPB, and that is the cost. 
for banks and financial firms, complying with the CFPB rules uh, is going to cost, frankly, a ton of time and a ton of money. You know, I happen to be a part of the leadership team of a, of a local financial institution. We're small by, uh, by comparison to a lot of other groups, and we've spent a lot of time already looking at how the CFPB is going to impact us. And we've sent people to conferences, and, and we're looking into the things that we're going to have to do to change our process and procedure. One financial institution spent 900 hours analyzing how its mortgage operations, servicing collections, and legal compliance measured up to the CFPB rules. 900 hours just measuring mortgage operations. It's pretty interesting. Then it modified its systems, processes, and training programs to ensure it would remain in compliance. One outcome was the firm's compliance team grew from 4 to 17 employees. It's pretty interesting. Lots of changes in this, in this industry. So what's the CFPB? Is it, a, is it an overarching compliance nightmare or an effective com consumer watchdog? I guess it's just like a lot of these groups, only time will tell. So for the weekly focus, uh, here's the question of the week, here's the quote of the week, and this is from Robert Oppenheimer, the American theoretical physicist, says, the optimist thinks this is the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist fears it is true. Excuse me, fears it is true. With with CFPB uh, going in place, does that mean I'm going to get a whole new set of disclosures when I get a mortgage loan or I refi or I go to buy a car? I mean, I already get a thick packet of paperwork when, when I do that. Have you guys seen, do we see any new kinds of things coming? And what does that technically, what does that mean for the consumer? Are they going to get a bunch more paperwork? You know, it might, it might, it's probably not going to manifest itself as much in deliverable paperwork as much as the entire process is changing. Um, so uh, I'm not a mortgage expert. I don't do mortgage loans. We do have a mortgage department at, uh, at our financial institution. But uh, I know we've sent a couple folks to mortgage conferences. And basically, if you've gotten a mortgage in the last 20 years, um, starting uh, in the next 18 to 24 months, your experience will be completely and utterly different. Um, and it has to do with the way the entire process is handled all the way from application and initial disclosures through to good faith estimates and actually all those names are even changing. Um, so when it comes to mortgages, when it comes to car loans direct through the uh, dealerships, things like this, these processes are going to change drastically. Okay. Good enough. Well, we did get a listener that, would, that uh, tweeted in this week and I know you've got that one. You take a second to read that with the answer. Yeah, great question. So, love having these, by the way. Thank you so much, Robert Williams. You're the man. Appreciate you uh, <laughs> Appreciate you reaching out uh, via Twitter. And then for any of you other listeners out there, I tell you what, it makes us feel really nice that we know people are listening. So, feel free to reach out via Twitter, at Andrew D. Hunt. Uh, I will certainly respond as soon as I see it. So, Robert had a quick question uh, that I really loved. And he is an NPR money uh, listener, just like myself, which uh, rock on, brother. Um, and he said he was listening to a podcast, and they were talking about how the Dow, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, is not really that accurate when um, looking at the market as a whole. He said, is this true? And if so, which index should I follow? Well, that is, a, that is just an absolutely fantastic question. And so I wanted to take a minute to address that. You know, here on, on our commentary, we talk about three indices. We talk about the Dow Jones primarily. We talk about the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. 
And uh, the Dow Jones is the oldest and most widely reported on indices. But NPR Money was exactly right when they said that it's probably not the best proxy for the market. Why? Well, the Dow Jones measures the 30 largest companies in the United States. Um, as we all know, there are far more than 30 large companies in the United States that make up the entire U.S. large company market. And so because of that, financial professionals and anybody really in the industry tends to follow the S&P 500, which follows the 500 largest companies in the United States. There's other indices that you could potentially follow. Uh, you could follow the Russell 1000, for example, that looks at the 1000 largest companies in the United States. They each have their own way that they're constructed, uh, price weighted versus value weighted. And if you want to learn more about that, you can dive into some Investopedia or, uh, or Google search uh, on what price weighted versus value weighted indices are. But uh, Planet Money was exactly right when they said that, hey, Dow might, might not be the best proxy. Maybe you should look at the S&P 500. I'll also tell you um, that, uh, in fact, just today, uh, it was pretty interesting to watch, we saw a pretty uh, dramatic difference between what the Dow was doing and what the S&P 500 was doing today. And that's because since there's only 30 companies in the Dow, a lot can happen, a lot can change based on what one company is doing. Whereas if you're watching 500 companies in an indices, uh, what, one, what one company is doing does not affect the entire market as much. So I like the S&P 500. It's probably the best one to look at. And of course, you should always look at different indices for different markets you're looking at. Uh, if you want to look at international markets, you should check out the MSCI EFA, E-A-F-A, which measures the, uh, the Europe, Africa, and Far East. Um, you could also look at the Nikkei for Japanese markets. Uh, you could look at the FTSE for uh, you know the UK. There's all kinds of interesting interesting indices out there. In fact, there's whole companies that all they do is calculate indices. Um, so always make sure that uh, you're you're keeping track of your score, uh, how you're doing versus the benchmark. And so make sure you're you're measuring the right benchmark. Very good, Andrew. Well, to, to, in the spirit of keeping this short, I'll say thanks for coming out this week. Great to see you again, and we'll get a couple. Of, we'll get a lot of these done through the weeks uh, that are the summer, and so come, you can come out and join us. You know, I'd say come out and join us live, but uh, we never really know what time we're going to do this. We, Andrew and I just kind of jump on. If you follow my Twitter, at Jay Collison, I almost always announce about 30 minutes before we go live uh, that we are doing the podcast, and if you have a moment, it's always fun to come out live. You can join us for chat and uh, ask us questions live and in real time, and uh, we'd be happy to answer them. So, Andrew, again, thanks for coming out, and I'll remind you, if you're new to podcasting and you're looking for an easy way to listen each week, you might want to consider using Stitcher, available on any browser as well on both Android and iPhone platforms, basically any platform you can get. Even your car, if you have a brand-new car, Stitcher most likely is in the entertainment system and will work. Uh, you can listen to the podcast both at home and on the road. This show and all the past shows are on Stitcher. Stitcher.com, search financial tech. I just actually ran somebody through that today. And if you just type financial tech, it's the very first podcast that comes up. It's education for your ears. And be sure to visit Guide Rock Capital. That's just guiderockcapital.com. Of course, we mentioned this several times. You can follow Andrew on Twitter. He's just at Andrew D. Hunt. And get all the show notes and this show out at the average guy. TV. Now, Andrew and I say thanks for listening. We'll catch up with you next week. Remember, be smart about your investing.
Guiderock Capital Management Inc., or Guiderock, is a registered investment advisor that is registered with the state of Nebraska and located in Omaha, Nebraska. Guiderock and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration requirements imposed upon investment advisors in the states in which they maintain clients. Guiderock may only transact business in those states in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. Important information describing Guiderock's business operations, services, and fees can be viewed on the SEC's website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov. Guiderock will provide Form ADV Part 2, which serves as the firm's disclosure document to all clients. Copies of Form ADV Part 2 are also available to interested parties upon request. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. Past performance is not indicative of future results. No current or prospective clients should assume that the future performance of any specific investment, investment strategy, or product made reference to directly or indirectly on this video, website, or indirectly via hyperlink or any affiliated third-party website will be profitable or equal to past performance levels.